In chapter 10 of the letter to the Hebrews, the author lays out, and you may have heard it when I read, these uh, three positive exhortations. Let us, let us, let us. They all start with that. You could think of these not so much as New Year's resolutions. I don't know if you're into resolutions or not, but they're really not so much things we want to start doing for the first time, but really continuing resolutions in the non-legislative sense. Uh, They're things that we need to keep on doing. And if we've slipped away from them somehow, the author encourages us to come back to it. I think his three exhortations are actually a nice summary of the Christian life and a great place to start a new year. First, in verse 22, he says, let us draw near. Let us draw near. He's talking about intimacy with God. The kind of intimacy that's only possible because of the sacrifice and cleansing accomplished by Jesus. That's what so much of the book of Hebrews, if you know that uh, letter, has been about, is this priestly ministry of Jesus and how he cleans us and how he deals with sin. The author writes, we can draw near in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies washed. So we can come close to God without being afraid without saying, you know what, I'm not good enough. I've done this, so I can't get close to God. Jesus has dealt with that. He has washed us, and so we can draw very close, right into the heart of God. May that kind of intimacy uh, define our year, 2016, for individuals and for us as a church. The second continuing resolution, the author of Hebrews says in verse 23, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I realize that many of us are not coming into this new year with great creative energy. We're not coming in ready to make resolutions. We're just barely making it, if we're honest. Circumstances at work, emotional struggles, health challenges, grief over the loss of a loved one, Parenting young children or teenage children sucks the life out of us. So I don't know what it looks like for you, but I know a lot of times the holidays are not actually restful. They bring up a lot of drama. They bring up a lot of pain. They bring up a lot of grief. And you might be coming in to this new year not really on your first best foot forward. And if that's where you are, then this particular exhortation is for you. Hold on to hope. What we need, especially when we're in that place, is that gritty, resilient kind of hope. That hope that says, I don't know if or when this particular circumstance is going to improve, but I'm just going to keep holding on. There's a a hard-headedness about the hope. Notice, however, from the text, the source of the hope is not in you. It's not based on your strength to persevere or your positive attitude. The hope is based in the faithfulness of God. The author writes, for he who promised is faithful. That's his explanation of how it is we are to have hope. God is faithful. He will come through. So we have intimacy. We have hope. And then the third exhortation in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Love and good works are a great summary of the Christian life. 
It's love for God and it's love for others being worked out in these works of service, these acts of blessing other people in some way. You don't really have to search very hard for these good works. All of us, we're, we're surrounded by opportunities. Wherever you find yourself, God has good love and good works for you right there in that place. So if your life right now is changing diapers, that's love and good works. Particularly pungent kind of it, but it is love and good works. If it's working at the bank or teaching or being a friend or a neighbor, that's love and good works. Just be faithful to the task in front of you and with the people that God has placed in your life. So for the author of Hebrews, these are these continuing resolutions. They're not new, but they're things that we are exhorted to keep on doing. Great summary of the Christian life. This intimacy with God, holding on to hope in the face of challenges and orienting our lives towards love and good works. May that define our 2016. But in verse 25, after offering these very positive exhortations, the author calls out this bad habit. He calls out this thing that some in their community had begun to do and it had become habitual and it was not good. After saying, let's do intimacy with God, let's do resilient hope, let's do love and good works, he says, but let's not do this. Everything that he's just said, the positive exhortations, won't really work if they're stuck in this bad habit. Think about it like someone who adopted a New Year's resolution to live a healthy lifestyle. And as part of that, they plan to exercise three times a week. They plan to eat more fruits and vegetables and to get a full night's sleep. But they are a smoker and they don't have any plans to give that up. It's a little bit illogical. Their bad habit of smoking is going to undermine all of the other positive things they want to do. So what is this bad habit that the author of Hebrews calls out? Not meeting together. Not meeting together. Let me read verse 24 and 25. Again, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We don't know the reasons that this particular group of Christians were neglecting to meet together or some were. Maybe it's because they were lapsing in their faith. That's something that comes out in the book of Hebrews. And there can be a relationship between when we're kind of struggling in our faith or stepping back from it and, and how often we're gathering with God's people. Maybe they were fearful of persecution. That's another reality, another contextual thing going on in this letter. But whatever it was, no matter how good a reason they thought they had, and you know, personal safety might be a good reason, the author says, do not form this habit. Don't get into this habit of not gathering with other Christians. Well, this habit was not unique to them. Every generation of believers, in, in some way or another, faces this temptation to neglect to meet together with other believers. And I think there are at least three reasons for this. First part of our fallen nature gravitates towards dividing and separating from others. 
which is why I'm so um, glad about this move the Rwandans are making because it's exactly in the opposite direction. It's towards unity. Our fallen nature goes the other way. We may enjoy some sort of relationship togetherness for a while, but when it is no longer uh, convenient or it doesn't meet our needs or there's some sort of hardship or conflict, we go our separate ways. If you've ever read uh, the book, The Great Divorce, this sort of allegory by uh, C.S. Lewis, he's got this uh, really sobering depiction of, of hell, the gray town, where people just move further and further and further away from each other. And sort of at the outer ring, which I find humorous, is Napoleon. <laughs> so that would be one reason. We have this nature of our flesh to go separate ways. The second reason we face this temptation to not gather is actually because of the power of the gatherings. You see, there is a spiritual force of evil in the world, and if we're not coming to terms with that, then, then we need to do some work there because it's part of reality as much as God is part of reality. And this evil one, this Satan, whatever name we give him, he knows all about the intimacy, the hope, the love and good works that can be stirred up in God's people when we gather. He knows the scriptures, right? So he knows when Jesus says, two or three gather in my name, He's going to be present in a certain way. He's going to respond to prayers in a certain way. The evil one knows all this, friends, and so, of course, he's going to tempt us away from gathering and try to get us as individuals and as a culture to form a habit of not gathering. And like any other temptation in our life, he's going to make it seem perfectly reasonable and justifiable. Statistics in Charlotte bear this out, that I think this temptation has taken hold. We, you heard me talk about this, and another preacher, Rob Kelly, back in the end of the summer talk about this. I was very taken back by these uh, statistics. 93% of people in Charlotte self-identify as Christians. Now, there's some problems with that emphasis on the word self-identify, so it might not be a biblical definition of a Christian, but nonetheless, 93%. Does that surprise you? It surprised me. I knew we were a Christian town, but that's a lot. But less than 50% have an active involvement in a local church. It's a 43% gap there. Now, some might attend church some, but if we're talking about regularly gathering with God's people for worship and some sort of involvement in other things outside of just a Sunday, the numbers go down dramatically. So there's this gap in our minds that, hey, it's okay to be a Christian, but not really to gather with God's people. And I think that is because of this sort of mass deception of the evil one. He's trying to get us separated, isolated. Because it's when we're separated and isolated that he can come at us the most. Third reason that I think we form this bad habit, and probably the most obvious, is that we've become too busy as a culture. We've just become too busy. It's normal today to take on too much, to make too many commitments with our time, and to have these very fragmented, harried lives. In fact, we've taken it, and sometimes, to, to the extreme of making it an idol of our busyness. We lift it up as this symbol of importance, of saying, well, I must have greater value as a human being if I am super busy. We don't know how to rest as a culture. The idea of Sabbath, of taking one day out of seven, uh, that's becoming more and more a foreign concept. And when we do use time, we don't always use it on what's important. 
We waste time on trivial things. And so time, instead of becoming a blessing, instead of becoming another thing that God uses to order our lives, becomes this curse. It's a great scene in um, Castaway. Has anyone seen that movie with Tom Hanks? Remember who he works for, FedEx? And um, he, in the beginning of the movie, it's such a contrast between two different types of time. The beginning of the movie is like, rush, rush, rush. He's doing the calendar thing with his fiance. What are we going to get together next? I got to go. And then he, and he goes and he's in the FedEx you know, packing plant and he's pulling out the clock. He's like, don't turn your back on time. Like time is your master. It rules you. And then of course the irony is he goes in desert island for like five years and has more time that he knows what to do with. A lot of time we feel like that is that taskmaster of time pressuring us instead of being a gift. So the pressure we feel around that causes us to squeeze out things that are most easily cut. Even if they're important, if they're most easily cut, a lot of time in the frenzy, that's the stuff that gets pushed to the side. And unfortunately, sometimes for some of us, gathering with God's people is one of those things that is easily cut. Because it seems that cutting out time with God's people would have the least amount of negative consequences. If we cut back on work, we're going to feel the negative effects right away. Stuff's going to pile up on our desk. It's going to reflect poorly on us compared to, again, culturally, more and more. It's not 40 hours anymore uptown. I get that. It's more and more like 50, 60, 70 hours, and that's the norm. And so if we're under the norm, we're going to look bad. Might even put our job at risk. So we're going to feel it there. Or if we scale back on kids' activities, again, this is a very uh, popular town for doing lots of kids' activities, which both work and kids' activities are a good thing. I'm not not saying those aren't life-giving good things for us, but if those are the place we pull back, we we might feel stressed that our kids aren't being developed, that they're not making the relationships, that something's not happening in, in the way that they need to grow up. It's very much like money, right? When money gets tight, we cut the things that seem frivolous and focus on the essentials. And the point I'm making, I think, is that gathering with God's people too often is seen as a nice thing to do. Yeah, I'll do that if I I have the time, if it fits. But it's not necessarily essential. And when things get tight with time, it can go. Well, I think there's two fallacies, at least, with this mindset. First, forming a habit of not gathering is a bit like forming a habit of smoking. In the short term, it might not seem to affect you. But in the long term, this habit of not gathering has disastrous effects. It will squelch your intimacy with God. It will affect the the resilience of your hope, how you're able to keep believing in the face of challenges. It will decrease your motivation towards love and good deeds. And I don't say this lightly, but it could even lead to you losing your faith, which was another issue that the author of Hebrews was addressing. Peter, in one of his letters, tells us that your faith is more precious than gold. All the things that you possess, all the relationships you have, your faith is the most valuable thing that you possess. There's a lot of ways that we cultivate that, we protect it, we steward our faith, but one of the most important is that we gather with God's people. We resist the temptation to let that be squeezed out. So that's the first fallacy. Oh, it doesn't really affect me short term, but it really does in the long term. The second fallacy is this belief that gathering is all about me. Gathering is all about me. If you pick up a book on time management, and there are many, many books on time management, 
the default philosophy is it's all about you. They put you at the center of sort of your own little universe. And so it's saying, hey, make your schedule, make your, all that work in a way that maximizes your comfort, your effectiveness, your needs getting met. So if gathering with God's people in a season of your life doesn't seem to be an immediate benefit or some particular activity, it's like, well, I go to that, but that doesn't really seem to help. It's easy to cut that out, right? To make it a lower priority. Well, it's, it's about me. It's not serving me. So I'm okay to, to not have that right now. Here's the thing. Gathering with God's people, although it's a benefit to you, it's not primarily about you. And it's not primarily about me. It's primarily about God. And I would say, quick on the heels of that, it's about other people. When we make a decision to not come to Sunday worship, to not be involved in a pastorate, to do something else where we miss an opportunity to regularly gather with God's people, the community misses out on the grace of God at work uniquely in you to bless others. Over and over, Paul's going to work that out. He, he tells us about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are basically just God's grace uniquely at work through you. He also describes us as different body parts, how every part is needed to kind of function, to be a healthy functioning body. And so the, the logical extension of that is, hey, the community will suffer if you're not there because there's something good that's coming through you that is missed. Notice the two positive commands that are given right around the author calling out this bad habit. Look at your text again, verse 24 and 25. First, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And then he says, let's encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Gathering with God's people is about one another. It's about the ways that God's grace comes through us. His love comes through us to one another. And so when you're not present, the community misses out on opportunities for love, for good works, for encouragement from you. I think part of the problem uh, is not that we have a high view of ourselves. Sometimes that's it. Sometimes I think it's that we have a low view of ourselves. We may think that we don't have a lot to offer. Who's going to miss me if I'm not there? I, you know, I'm not teaching or I'm not doing this, so what does it matter? But simply by our presence with God's people, we are a conduit of God's grace to the community. And then that goes up exponentially as we begin to engage, invest in relationships, use our gifts. Simply by our presence, and then even more as we invest, we are a conduit of God's grace. You, every single one of you, have something to offer. God has an extremely high view of you. So this habit of not gathering, easy one to fall into. Very culturally normal today. It appeals to the nature of our flesh to divide and separate. It certainly belongs to this realm of temptation of the evil one. He knows the power of our gatherings. And it's a cultural challenge given how busy we have become. But as justifiable, as normal as this habit seems, it is not a good one. And it reflects a fallacy in our thinking. We've all struggled with this habit in different ways. Throughout different seasons of our life, different things happen, right? We have kids, we're caring for an ailing parent, we have work things, right? There, there's lots of things going on that we have to deal with that affect what it looks like in a particular season of life to gather with God's people. So let me just begin by saying there's grace. 
There's grace. We serve a God of grace. So we're not setting up a new legalism or some check system where we're going to take role in attendance. We're just talking about the importance of living into life and how God has provided that. It's also going to look different, right? For everybody. The point is that each person, each individual, each family, each married couple needs to, on a regular basis, ask the Holy Spirit to show you what gathering with God's people looks like in a particular season of your life. I think what happens sometimes is we move into a a busy season and we say, oh, well, I I can't do it now. And maybe that's right. And maybe that's good in the Lord. Um, But then we move out of that season and then we kind of keep the habit, right? the habit of not gathering. We don't actually go back and say, all right, now I actually have a little bit more time. Now it makes sense. I'm gonna add back in the things that matter. I think it's helpful to think about gathering with God's people like a spiritual discipline, right? Like like prayer, like like even a a physical discipline. If you have disciplines in your life of, of working out of exercise, think about this like something that is good for you, but it takes discipline, which means it's not always gonna be convenient. You're not always gonna feel like it. It's gonna cost you something, but it's good for you. It's good for others, and ultimately, it brings glory to God. So a lot of ways it could look, but let me just frame, give one idea of what this spiritual discipline might look like. There are 168 hours in a week. It's funny. Money, we don't all get the same amount, but everyone has exactly the same amount of time. It's pretty cool. Let's say that each of us sleeps eight hours a night, which I know is not the case for many of us, but let's just say you sleep eight hours a night, That leaves 112 waking hours. I think a good spiritual discipline for a Christian is to spend about six to eight hours a week gathering with God's people. Six to eight hours a week gathering with God's people. That may sound like a lot, or maybe it doesn't sound like a lot, depending on where you're coming from. But if you break that down into percentages, that's about five to seven percent of your waking hours. The vast majority of your time should not be spent gathering with God's people. Does that sound strange? A lot of churches, I think, actually get this wrong, that they, they want to so fill our Christian lives with, with kind of busyness and different activities that we all of a sudden become more and more separated from the world out there. I think God actually designed it. He set the thing up so that the vast majority of the time we're not gathered. 95%. We're in our neighborhoods. We're in our workplaces. We're in our homes, our schools, our social circles, whatever that might be. But there are these precious few hours a week when it's crucial to gather. And one of the reasons that we gather is actually so that we can be more effective, more full of life when we go back out into our dominant form, the 95% of the time. I would love for everyone at King of Kings to adopt this spiritual discipline of gathering for three hours on a Sunday and three hours once during the week. Three hours on a Sunday, three hours once during the week. I'm laying that out as a challenge, spiritual discipline to work on for 2016. Sunday mornings, we have what we're doing right now. (coughs) Our larger worship services where we meet God in prayer and praise and word and sacrament. And we also get some time to fellowship and to see each other and things like that. Um, we're also, and I'm very excited about this, um, pray into this because it needs some work, but we're looking to add a Sunday morning Christian education hour down the road, possibly this year. Um, we got to get some moving pieces in place, but we could accomplish all of that on a Sunday morning in three hours, more or less, of having an hour where we're really coming together for some Christian education, some teaching, some theology, Bible study, and then doing our worship service together. 
It's good for us to maximize our Sunday times because we're a very regionally spread out church. So if we're already coming together on a Sunday, let's build in more to that Sunday. And that's something we're thinking about as a staff. So that's Sunday mornings. And then during the week, we have our pastorates. And those are on every other week's schedule. And so one time during the week, you're gathering about three hours or so, including commuting time for some of us, except if you live way out, um, that you're in a pastorate. And then the off week of that, there's different kinds of opportunities for, for other groups to gather, smaller groups sometimes. Maybe a group of couples is getting together. Maybe you're doing uh, the women's ministry, Bible study, or gatherings, so things like that. Let me be specific that this spiritual discipline is focused on the gathering, right? I'm not saying that you should only give six to eight hours a week to God. All of our time belongs to God, just like all of our money belongs to God. And it should be stewarded in ways that please him. So your own devotional time, prayer time, ways you're studying the scripture on your own, ways you're serving, like through Micah 6.8 and Lansdowne. Some of you are over there tutoring or volunteering. Some of you are on leadership in church. Those are, those are additional times, and sometimes it's going to require more time. But our gathering together in groups like this with other believers, it's a relatively small amount of time, but it's vitally important. So during our potluck, you're going to hear about some of the opportunities we have this year to gather. Things like our pastorates, our uh, women's ministry, later on down the year in our um, yearly retreat, our church retreat. So consider how you might engage this spiritual discipline, what that might look like in your life. Three hours on a Sunday, three hours once during the week. I know that right now that might be impossible for you. Uh, If nothing else, you've already made commitments that are kind of going on into the winter. Spend 2016 saying, what would it look like for me to uh, make some changes so that in the fall or in the beginning of 2017, I'm in a better place to step into this life-giving rhythm? Whatever you do, wherever you're coming from, whatever stuff you have on your plate, the one thing I would say is speak to God about it. Pray about it. I'm holding this out as a challenge, but I'm trusting the Holy Spirit will direct and lead each believer and each family. And you need to tune in to him. Listen, the one thing I would say don't do is just go to the status quo. I've already shown you how the the dominant culture here is gonna keep you away from this. So don't just go into the status quo, quo, go with the flow, because I think that's gonna lead to a bad habit. Spend some time intentionally talking to God about it, married couples talking about it, talking to a friend about it, saying, hey, here's what I'm thinking. What are you hearing about that? I think as we step into this as individuals, as a church, that God has more and more life that he wants to bring uh, into our midst. Let me pray.